This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers. Joining me, as he usually does, is my friend, my confidant, my co-host, Leon Logan-Nathan. How are you, buddy? I'm good, mate. Yourself? Oh, yeah, not bad. Not bad. Can't complain. Yeah, yeah. Had a good uh, chicken parmy for dinner that I made. Right, I had um, a t- I had a tandoori pocket uh, for oh, the look first time. <laughs> <laughs> you just had to one up me, didn't you? What do you mean? It was all, it's all chicken, mate. You know, um, that's <laughs> <all> good. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is true. What else is going on? Ah, oh, look, uh, had had a good day, mate. Uh, just uh, look. I mean, look, I mean, we always talk about the weather, but you know, it's, it's 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 really good. Mate. We're we're on a we're on a roll at the moment, and uh, and as from what I understand, uh, you know, the borders may be opening up at some point for you to at least come in uh, in some sort of quarantine fashion. <laughs> I'm, I'm optimistic that my friend uh, and yours, Walshy, that joins us each week, uh, might have had his dates slightly up the spout. Right. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm I'm quietly optimistic that uh, that it, they mightn't be too much longer. If you look at the pressure that's uh, mounting on on uh, the man who's allegedly responsible solely for the decision, mm. um, and, and based on the amount of COVID nineteen cases that exist in the territory and and even Australia wide, um, I think uh, the fact that the footies are coming back and that uh, Schools are back and things are getting back to normal. Uh, they're going to struggle to keep these borders closed for too much longer. Yeah, and I think and as much as he's under pressure, uh, I think Queensland is under enormous pressure from yeah. the tourism industry. Yes, so, uh, yes absolutely. Yeah. Well, tourism's the big sufferer, really, um, uh, you know, across Australia, but particularly in the NT um, and Queensland. But, um, you know, the, I think there's been industries that everyone's suffered, everyone's been affected by it, but... I think there's been industries that probably have been decimated and sort of fell below the radar uh, until it was too late. And, and tourism fits into that right smack bang in the middle. Mm. Well, mate, um, one of the great privileges of, of doing this podcast is uh, we get to talk to people from uh, all all walks of life and all areas. And... Mm. Um, and I think you and I both knew that when we started this podcast last year, at some point in the lead up to the election, um, we'd start to have uh, people that were running for office, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, taking some interest in what we were doing. Yep. So um, it is uh, on, on that basis that, uh, you know, recently we have been um, approached by some people to uh, to tell their story and we're very, obviously, very uh, um you know, very grateful for that. But I do want to make the point, though, um, we are a, a non-partisan show, uh, <laughs> yes. not, notwithstanding that we might be slamming one one form of government or another from time to time. And, yeah. and if, if a particular political party happens to be in power, they shouldn't take that as, uh, as you know, a default that we are for the other side by any stretch. Yeah. And I want to make that point very clear. Mm. Um, because uh, so far on this podcast, we've had uh, you know a, a stack of people from the uh, Territory Alliance Party, including mm. the leader uh, Terry Mills, 
we've had a few people from the CLP. We've had Luke Gosling, who was, um, you know, who, who came on on board. I must say, with a little bit of trepidation initially, but uh, mm. you know, Luke and I have had some conversations since then, and uh, he he looks back on it as a real, you know, quite fondly, and as as a, as a well worthwhile experience. Mm. So I want to put. Um, uh, put it out there that uh, you know we welcome all and sundry, and we don't care which party you are. We don't even care if you're independent. But yeah. if you have something to say and, and you're running for office, then uh, we'd certainly want to give you a platform to be able to talk about uh, yourself and what you do. Um, we, we recently did, did that with Tracy Hayes, and my goodness, that that podcast has just gone off the charts. Yeah, yeah. Well, we definitely are bipartisan i like to make fun of everyone so um (laughs) everyone's welcome (laughs) yeah so uh our special guest today on the podcast is a fellow by the name of toby george i can't say that i've met toby before but looking at him on zoom right now he looks a bit familiar so maybe i have met him somewhere perhaps on the one of those prba cruises or (laughs) some uh, a chamber of commerce sunset event uh, but uh, welcome to the podcast, Toby. Yeah, thanks, Leon. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. We're, we're, we're going to be kind. We won't go too hard on you, I promise. Oh, I appreciate that. So, Toby, you're, you're on the podcast uh, partly because you have put your hand up to run for um, the CLP. In, in which seat exactly? So it's in the seat of Port Darwin. Port Darwin. See, when you mention Port Darwin, do you know what I think of? What's that? Shane Stone. <laughs> Shane Stone held the seat of Port Darwin from 1990-something till when he eventually left politics. Uh, and I remember that very clearly, Toby, because I was at university at the time. Uh, and, and all of a sudden uh, there was this kerfuffle with uh, some of the, 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 the male um, students at college saying, ah, oh, Shane Stone's coming, Shane Stone's coming. See, who the hell's Shane Stone? <laughs> and, uh, and he rocked up at university because at that time the, the college was in Miley Point where the old Tamira Lodge was and uh, has subsequently been knocked down. And, and I don't think anyone has actually figured out what should be built in its place because it's the, probably the most expensive piece of land <laughs> in, the whole, real estate in the country. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And so he, he rocked up and I remember Stoney taking everybody out to the nightclub and, you know, I think it was called Circles or uh, I don't know, one of the, one of the, at the Beaufort perhaps, <laughs> yeah. and buying drinks and all that. And that was his, uh, his approach to uh, camp- on the campaign trail. But I suppose it's a bit different these days, is it, Toby? Yeah, it sounds pretty different to what I'm experiencing so far. That's for sure. <laughs> sounds a hell of a lot better than um, than roadsides and door knocking. <laughs> right. There was Maybe another. I should change tack. <laughs> there was another uh, another politician by the name of Fred Finch, uh, for, uh, also a CLP uh, stalwart, and I think Fred may have passed away a few years ago, actually. Um, but his his approach, I think, uh, well, actually, I could be getting him wrong. I could be getting him mixed up with Mick Palmer. Uh, who's definitely alive and well. I believe Mick Palmer might actually even be an alderman in the Darwin, city of Darwin, yeah? Yeah, correct, yeah. Yeah, so he used to walk down, I think his, his, his seat was Karama, and he used to walk down the, the road with a, with, with a six-pack, and uh, that, <laughs> was, <laughs> that was his approach to campaigning. But uh, you can tell us all about yours, Toby. Um, 
But uh, perhaps, perhaps you might want to start with uh, where you were born sure, yeah. and, uh, and how you ended up in the Territory. Okay, well, um, I was born in Royal Darwin Hospital oh. in uh, 1981. So, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, 81 model. And um, it was a pretty, I reckon it's a glorious time. And out of all the places I could have landed in the world, I reckon Darwin in the 1980s would be right up there for sure. And so your parents were originally from Darwin as well or they came here? No, so Dad, Dad came in the late 60s, early 70s. So he was a livestock exporter. Um, part of the livestock export industry um, and uh, sort of came up here on a dream with his best mate um, and Britton Jones, you know, it was always the frontier and she mm. came up here and, and rolled up the sleeves and had from, a bit of a crack at it. And from where? So he was, uh, he was uh, born and grew up in um, South Australia, right. Mount, in Mount Pleasant area. Uh, in about uh, year 10, he went to an agricultural college and then got a cadetship um, with uh, John Deere Chamberlain. Um, mm. And he just worked his way up and he, he sort of said it was a wonderful thing and it's a bit of a shame that cadetships have gone now. You know, we sort of go through having to go all the way through high school, you know, through university and, and into jobs. And he said that was a wonderful thing. You know, you get to know a business from the ground up. He started off as the mail boy. So you're out there mm. sort of face-to-face with absolutely everyone. You get to understand the ins and outs of the business. So I think that's something that's lost a bit now and it'd be, you know, great to have that as a, you know, and opportunities for, for kids that may be looking at sort of leaving school, you know, earlier. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so he met your mother here, did he? Yeah, so, well, um, yeah, he did, yeah. So uh, <laughs> apparently, I don't know which restaurant it was, uh, but... Uh, Charlie's? Yeah, I reckon it, was prob- <laughs> it probably was Charlie's around that time, but um, mum said she sort of turned around and there was this guy standing, you know, dancing on a table late at night and she sort of said, oh, he looks a bit all right, and he walked over and he reached his hand out and they started dancing on the table together and, you know, one thing went to another. So she was, she was a local? Uh, no, so she was uh, born and grew up in the um, northern Sydney, in North Kirkall. Right. Yeah, yeah my mm. grandma's still sort of living there at the moment. Um, she had a really interesting sort of journey, I think. She was, a, she was uh, went, so went through school, went through teacher's college, and the grandfather was a, was a, was a, a headmaster at Manly Boys High. And then she had a period of time where she was a, a cross between a bit of a... Um, you know, a bikey and a hippie. So she, yeah, she had a period of life where she was just uh, travelling around the um, around the country, and um, I think uh, then she was sort of looking for opportunities. So she had married a guy called Vit, um, who was uh, he, um, he was a Polish guy. So she met him down in um, in Sydney and had my older brother. So Ben, he's my older brother, he's seven years older than me and uh, things didn't go so well there and she looked for a bit of a break and uh, as a teacher there were great opportunities at that time up in the Territory and she came up and, and went straight out to Lajamanu and taught out at Lajamanu for a couple of years wow. with just herself and, and um, my older brother. Where, the, where is Lajamanu? I mean, I know I've heard of it, I just don't know where it is <laughs> geographically. Desert country, I think sort of south southwest desert country, yeah. So was it south of Alice Springs or...? I think northwest of Alice Springs, and to be completely honest, I haven't actually looked at a map to identify exactly where it is. Right, we should, yeah. you know, because I feel it's where Leon goes into research. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but keep going anyway. So uh, she she met your dad at, at, at potentially at Charlie's, and then <laughs> <laughs> it was table dancing one way or the other, regardless of the <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Um, 
Yeah, so I think that was um, a very sort of quick romance uh, and then I, I came along. So they, um, uh -huh. they got married in the, uh, I can't remember, that was the, the Stone Church up in the CBD, the um, Anglican Church up there, yeah, just near the path over to the, um, the waterfront, waterfront area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's yeah. the cathedral. Cathedral, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I should know. I should know. Should yep. know better. I went to an Anglican boarding school. Um, but yeah, so they met there. I popped out at um, Royal Darwin Hospital, and then the first place I was brought home to was a like a little donga out in Berrima. So uh, at that stage, um, Dad was building his business. So he went from the sort of cadetship and went over to. Um, he got taken over to uh, by John Deere Chamberlain. So he worked his way up through John Deere Chamberlain, went over to New South Wales. And worked his way up the business there until he got to being, I think he was the state sort of sales rep. Um, and then he, he and his mate BJ were like, well, let's do something different. And they, they decided to come up to the territory. And he went from, you know, selling tractors all over New South Wales to sweat, sweat, sweeping the floors of Dalgettys. Um, and he and his mate BJ, sort of, that's how they got their start. And they started contracting out um, on stations uh, all over the territory, doing fencing and putting out window, uh, windmills and, and things like that. And... Um, the, it started to, you know, the business was going fairly well. Um, and then he had an opportunity to sort of lobby the government, um, which was a CLP government at that stage, to subdivide a block of land which was on the, the western border of uh, Kakadu. So there's a big parcel of land out there and uh, worked pretty closely with government um, to be able to sort of um, get that um, big parcel of land subdivided. And that was a station called Opium Creek which he ran sort of a, a feedlot um, uh, a feedlot sort of company. The company he started was um, Carabao Exports with um, a guy called Sid Parker and his mate Ian Britton-Jones. Wow. And, and where did you go to school, um, Toby? Yep. So um, after, after a couple of years of being in that donger at Berrima, we moved to Pratt, Charlotte Street in Pratt. So, nice. So it was Pratt Primary uh, from there, all on there, right through to the end of primary school. And it was and it was an amazing time, you know. We we um, went down to Jenny Winter's sailing school. We used to go camping out on the banks of the Daly. We were really lucky. Dad had a, Dad had a yacht, so we got to do a lot of exploring around the Tiwis, Coburg Peninsula, mm. over to um, to um, King George River and, and the Kimberley. Um, it was just a really lovely time. Yeah. And your your older brother was with you the, the whole time, like yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. My younger brother came along, Ed. Oh, right. Remiss of me not to mention him. So yeah. uh, he's he's a year and a half younger than me. Right. Um, and yeah, so um, because Ben was sort of seven years older, he did quite a lot of looking after of us. We used right. to, you know, a big part of our family ritual growing up there was going down to the sailing club. Oh yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sailing club <laughs> on a Thursday night and playing, you know, playing Red Rover on the grass and and running amok. So yeah, very sort of. <laughs> Mm. You would have done a few uh, a few shows there, would you, Pete, down at the sailing club or not? Many at the sailing club and many <laughs> at the trailer boat club, yes. Yeah, right, yeah, it's, right. It's, yeah, I'm sure it would have been beautiful back then too, Toby, because um, while you wouldn't call it overdeveloped today, uh, I'm sure it was a, a lot more simpler back then as well. But, I mean, I, I've DJed in many parts of the world and, uh, from time to time, people will say, "Oh, where's your favourite spot?" Just that little that little peninsula from the the ski club all the way out to Peewees. It, it's you know, it, it's so unique and so beautiful. Um, I, I I struggle to find better places to to have weddings and parties than than those venues. 
Yeah, I, compl- I completely agree. It's spectacular. Mm. But the other good thing down there is it was, you know, back in the day when safety wasn't such a big issue. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was some pretty loose, um, you know, swings and, and slides and the like, but they had this one particular day where they had a safety day down there. <laughs> so, um, so if you owned a boat or a tinny or whatever and you had some flares and, and old sort of fire extinguishers, um, they'd get everyone down onto the beach. Uh, and they had this huge um, pan which they used to put diesel in. So they'd let you, you know, light it all up and then you'd go down and you'd learn how to use a fire extinguisher, wow. which, uh, which is pretty crazy. But the other thing they let you do is let off flares. So all your expired flares, you were allowed to stand on the beach and, and let your flares off. And Wow. Yeah, there was a, a particular incident um, with my younger brother when that, when that stopped. <laughs> 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 you, you, can, you can imagine, you know, like 40 kids down there, flares being let off all kinds of stuff. But wow. I don't know if you know flares very well, but there's two types. There's um, a smoke flare, which is sort of striking with itself, and orange yeah. smoke, and then there's the rocket flares, which are like yeah. a fair bit bigger. They've got a ring pull, you pull it in this huge ball of... Um, Phospho, phosphorus, whatever it is, goes up into the sky. So my younger brother had sort of his, he had the cap off, they line all the kids up, say, okay, you stand there, hand the, hold the flare out at 45 degrees and, you know, and then, and then sort of pull as hard as you can. My younger brother started pulling it and then pulling it and he sort of lost concentration of where he was pointing and eventually when he pulled it, the flare went off and shot up sideways into the bush all up above um, the sailing club. So I don't know wow. exactly when, when, when they stop it, but um, oh yeah, they don't do it anymore. They didn't collect sure. anybody in the eye or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you don't said flares... lefty for nothing, Leon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking about the, the, the most famous uh, Northern Territory news uh headline of all time i think it was uh, <laughs> yes. uh what was it it was something about a, a cracker up the clacker yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. it still haunts us that headline <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean i think it's interesting because that really contributed to this place being viewed as a bit of a wild frontier you know like we had mm. crocodile dundee was out at that time we had a lot of tourists coming through to see kakadu and experience this wild place sort of full of cowboys and mm. and to a certain extent i feel like darwin uh, and, and the Northern Territory is still a, a front frontier, but it's kind of lost that identity. And I think because we're going through and have been, you know, for for a good period of time, trying to really find out what that what our identity is, because I think we've mm. lost, you know, we've definitely shaken that crocodile Dundee thing. But we've been through, you know, the boundless possible marketing sort of campaigns, and you know, trying to sell ourselves as something. And yeah, I just it would be really wonderful to have that view of where we all want to be, you know, in 2030, 2040, and, and really coming together and driving towards whatever that is. Well, let me ask you a question about that. And, uh, you know, uh, talking about crackers and, and, and clackers and, and uh, all those things, um, what's your view on the, um, on the uh, what do we call it, even the firecracker night? What is it called, Pete? Territory Day. Territory Day, yeah. Yeah. Territory Day. What's your view on, on, on you know, firecrackers, Territory Day? Because, I mean, you know, it, it's a bit of a polarising thing. I mean, some people think we should have it at all costs and other people think, you know, we've, it's, you know, we've, we've done our dash and it should be done more professionally and mm. less of, you know, less strain on hospitals and things like that. What's your view? I mean, if you had asked me sort of three three years ago, I would have said it's a you know an integral part of what it is to be in the territory. But you know, I recognise things are evolving. That and we lost our little uh, puppy dog on cracker night oh, <laughs> in, in in Catherine um, about two years ago. So um, and that was a uh, you know some big crackers going off. Um, mm. We lost it for two weeks, and that sort of experience and seeing you know what it was like for the dog isn't good. You know, a lot of people own cats and dogs and. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm in two minds about it. You know, um, I love the fact that I can take my son down and he can experience and daughter and, and, and as a family we can let fireworks off down at Fanny Bay. And um, It's just about that sort of being responsible, I guess, and... Are we getting to a, and and this is sort of a common thing that I've heard a number of people talk about is, you know, at what where do we draw the line on being what it is to be a responsible person? COVID's probably a good example of that as well. Some people say I should be able to make those own choices myself. You know, if uh, if my grandmother wants to see my grandson, then it should be you know I should be capable of making a risk based decision uh, on that um, sort of interaction. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it can't be as loose as it has been. I think that's, you know, fairly evident. Um, but I would hate to see it sort of taken away completely and for us not to have, you know, maybe more dedicated areas for everyone to do it together in a more controlled manner with better support from health services and the like. Um, mm. But if you own a, a block above a certain size, perhaps it should be okay, you know, it should be okay to do it out there. But um, I remember um, when Henry, so some son, eight-year-old son, when he was about a year and a half old, um, we, you know, trying to get your kid to sleep on crack and I were living in a unit mm. um, in Mitchell Street at the time and whenever <laughs> it, it was just like Beirut, right, downtown Beirut. Yeah. So we threw him in the car and went to drive down to East Point and there was just crackers going everywhere and it is mm. unsafe. So, you know, I don't want to see a stop to it, but I do think we should probably look at making it a bit safer than what it currently is. So, Toby, you finished uh, primary school at primary. I presume you went to Darwin High? I did, yeah. I was yeah. there for a term. Yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> a term? Yeah, a term, yeah. What happened? Uh, um, it was so I ended up going to a boarding school, but there's a bit of a story behind why. Um, so I when I, I, was sort of, I came to that at Pratt Primary, right, and you go out as a, I can't remember, it was year seven or year six. I think it was year seven. Oh, year six, going year seven. I don't know. Anyway, first year in um, high school. And you sort of leave being the top of the, you know, top of the, not top of the tree because it wasn't like that for me, but you go into this new um, place where there's kids that are five years old and you and their kids and all that kind of stuff. And I guess maybe I was a bit naive or something, but I distinctly remember being out on the basketball court at the school during like the first or second recess and, you know, I had a few mates there from Prap and a few other people that I didn't know. And I looked across the basketball court and saw, you know, it's quite a big guy and he was putting cigarettes out on someone's arm Ouch. Yeah, yeah, and just like, and I so I sort of saw that and I walked over and it, I just said, hey, mate, I don't think you should be doing that. And that was probably the worst thing I could have said. <laughs> I should have stayed <laughs> a sheep because the attention just went boom on me. Yeah. And, um, and uh, then it sort of escalated to the point that, um, there was a sort of knife brought to school and oh, wow. uh, there was, um, there was, um, a fight arranged to happen at the graveyard in Parap and <laughs> yeah, my mum found out about it and um, unbeknownst to me, she planned for me to go um, to to the zoo on the day that that sort of fight happened and anyway, I think um, it was just that whole incident, uh, mum and dad thought it would probably be best that I went off to boarding school um, and mm. up, yeah, going down to uh, a school called the Southport School uh, on the Gold Coast, yeah, when that was... Um, that was a massive adjustment. So what was that like, Toby, being a kid from Darwin, you know, as you said, growing up in Parap, going to the sailing club every week, having that sort of free and easy lifestyle and then suddenly uh, finding yourself transported to, to somewhere like Southport, which just population-wise is, 
you know, multiples bigger than Darwin. And then obviously I presume, I don't know the Southport School personally, but I definitely have heard of it. So I know that, you know, it'd be quite large in terms of student numbers. But what was that like for you? Yeah, completely. It was, um, it took a massive adjustment. Yeah. Uh, I mean, ultimately it turned out to be a good thing, but, um, for that first six months or so, um, it was a pretty rude shock. You know, I went from being able to jump on my bike after school, throw the fishing rod in the back, go down to East Point and have a flick or, you know, half built mm. Bay to, uh, and then being home before dark with no dramas with a pack of five other kids to being woken up at 4.45 and if you didn't wake up, they flipped you out of bed and, right. you know, basically taken out onto the track to be running. And um, so that, that was a big, that was one big part uh, of the adjustment. I think the other was just culturally, right? Like Territorians are naturally pretty friendly, I think, mm. and, and I lobbed in on their school. A, I didn't sort of go in at the same time that everyone else yes. did. So I was out of sync. Everyone else had already been through that period of getting to know each other and then I was suddenly the only new kid. Um, so that was tough. They had um, academically, I was a bit behind. Yeah, so I was about a year and a half behind in math and English and uh, thankfully some, you know, dedicated teachers put some time in after school and I caught up fairly quickly. Mm. Um, but, um, but I think the biggest adjustment was just, you know, getting used to um, classes in society, you know, and racism yeah. too was a bit of a thing around that time. Mm. Uh, and they were huge shocks, you know. I went from Parap, or having been through Parap and at Darwin High where there's maybe a handful of Anglo, traditional Anglo kids and everyone else is a big spattering of, um, yep. you know. Um, and so then, yeah, so that was really, um, that, was, that, was a, that was a tricky adjustment. Um, you know, other kids' parents were driving around in big Range Rovers and, uh, you know, flash land cruisers and mum and dad would rock up in the old red sort of station wagon and, <laughs> um, yeah, so that was tough. Uh, there was fitness tests too, so I carried a bit of puppy fat as a kid <laughs> um, and, I, and I rocked in there and I had this like uh, on Friday afternoons uh, when school at about sort of 2 o'clock, um, they had this like army cadets um, but you had to pass a fitness test to do the army cadets and so I didn't pass that fitness test the first time so then I was put in a group of all the other kids that didn't pass a fitness test uh, and then they make you do fitness every Friday until you <laughs> end up passing the fitness test. So I was yeah. in that group of, group of kids. Um, but it got to a point where I just, you know, I just had said to myself, well, it's going to go one way or another. So I just I, I did something about it. I was, ended yeah. up getting up earlier than everyone else. So I went down, to, went down to the Sokol Oval, went running sort of by myself and... Um, you know, and did something about it and ended up getting fitting up. I passed the test and I think that was a, a really important lesson for, for me. And I got a lot of, um, you know, I think a lot of people turned around and said that was really good that you sort of, um, mm. you know, you got yeah. that. So. The making of you, so to speak. Yeah, to a certain, yeah, to a certain yeah. extent. I yeah. mean, it, yeah, it so was really good. Yeah, it, Sorry, so, the other thing I got into was rugby. That was the other big thing. So oh, I went cool. from growing up playing a lot of soccer in Darwin, but yeah. when you went to this school, it was rugby or, you know, yeah. you're basically outcast and I'd already yeah, had yeah. enough of that from all the other things I was doing. So <laughs> decided to start playing rugby and, and um, yeah. So when you say Southport, we're not talking about rural Darwin here, right? <laughs> <We're talking> no. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually people living there at that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so, um, so Southport on, on the Gold Coast, what was the name of the school? The Southport School. Is, uh, yeah. Okay, all right, okay. It's and interesting, so yeah. Why did your parents choose that school? Um, 
Well, my older brother had gone down to St. Peter's in um, Adelaide right. for, for a while uh, but found a way to sort of come home because I think mm. he just wasn't really um, adjusting to what that was all about. Um, Dad had sold his business um, and they were looking at probably moving within the next couple of years anyway uh, and we went on a family holiday down to Byron Bay for one Christmas and we loved it down there. No. Mm. So the whole yeah. family moved? Eventually, eventually. Yeah, right. So that they wanted me and my younger brother, Eddie, to go to a school that um, was close to where they were going to be living, you know, with the view of being able to be home on weekends and things like that. But um, in that environment, everything takes over, right? It's so co-curricular yeah. that you have no time. So even though mm. after, I think I went there in year eight, by about year 10, 11, they were living down there, but never saw them anyway. So they might as well have sort of been up in Darwin. Mm. Yeah. So you finished school there? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Got all the way through. Um, ended up um, playing in the sort of first fifteen, which is a big thing. And mm. um, but but I there was such a focus on co-curricular activity there that you could kind of get away with things if you were playing in the top rugby team. So <laughs> I remember, like in physics, I had this teacher who was one of the um, the fitness coaches of the rugby team and I just used to sit up the back and, you know, nod off, you know, put one hand up, pretend like I was riding and and um, and you got a bit of a free ticket and, and that to me was not a good thing. You know, I wasn't pushed. I didn't, um, you know, in a school that is really well known for, you know, levels of education, I could have got a bit more out of being there. Not to say that I didn't, you know, a lot of the friendships I made and the experiences I had were absolutely incredible. And I ended up getting into the course I wanted to do anyway, so it was sort of not too much lost. But I think those times have changed now and, and a lot of those schools are very, you know, make sure that the educational side of it's, you know, paired nicely with um, the co-curricular. So, so what, uh, what, what course did you apply for? So um, after, you know, doing all the sailing in, in Fanny Bay and uh, with trips with uh, Dad, and we did a lot of trips over to Indonesia too, actually, and so that Dad used to um, sail over there with, uh, with a bunch of buddies doing the Adama to Amelon Yacht Race. Yes, yes. So he'd do that really seriously and then we'd fly over as a family, all his mates would go back to work and we would um, we'd sail back through Indonesia for like three, three or four weeks. And wow. That was an incredible, incredible experience. So Mum would do a bit of homeschooling in Bahasa, of which I know, Nothing now, so sort of speak it. Um, but we got to go through all of these, you know, communities, uh, well, communities, villages, really, in the middle of nowhere, and, and jump off the boat. And you'd go in there, and my younger brother had blonde hair, so they would sort of go up, and they couldn't believe yeah. he had blonde hair. So, uh, but it was really interesting, I think, being you know being there and seeing villages and people living like that. Yes. The crazy thing is, they were some of the happiest people I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. You, know, yes. you think it's abject poverty, but. You know, they're getting on with it and they're happy and just appreciate the small things, I guess. So so after all of that and uh, doing a little sailing and being around reefs and things like that, um, I, I ended up enrolling in marine biology up at James Cook University. Oh, yes. Yeah, wow. yeah which, which was really, I enjoyed that um, for a number of reasons. Going back up to Townsville reminded me a lot of Darwin. Yes. You know, it was back to being able to, you'd, rock, you'd walk into a pub and you could be someone there sitting next to you uh, mm. and they'd turn around and say g'day. You know, yes. it was a bit different yeah, yeah, yeah. to being down on the southern end of the, um, the Gold Coast and, and other places. So I love that. Got right into the college life, kept playing rugby there, but sort of continued to not really focus on my studies, which, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, um, you know, I've got to where I am now without having to, um, yeah, to, to, to go to sort of hard in that department. And I'm very grateful for it because everything I've done, even though I haven't 
you know, put the yards in, hard yards into studying, um, I've got a hell of a lot out of everywhere I've been. So I so did you're that not for graduating from James Cook? No, no, I didn't. No, so I did. Um, I did two years, and I was playing with a rugby club there, um, the Ross River Redskins, and I was doing really well at that. And one of the coaches was from Brisbane and said, "Hey, Toby, I think you should really consider moving down to Brisbane and having a crack at a you know a professional rugby career." So. Um, to the disgust of mum and dad, <laughs> I pretty much uh, un- unenrolled myself from, um, from from that, and I moved down to Brisbane. And I had a couple of years. Oh, I had a full year down there trying to be a professional rugby player with the University of Queensland. So you know, training seven to eight times a, a week, and um, yeah, and that was that was an interesting year. Where'd you play, Toby? Well, position, yeah, I, position open, yeah. open side flanker. Okay. But, but progressively over the last 20 years, as I've put on weight and got heavier, I've migrated to, <laughs> to six and then eight. And then I played um, 10 years with South Darwin Rugby Club here in Darwin um, okay. as, a, as a second rower mostly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, Quite the progression. Yeah, indeed. Well, it started off as a prop when I first went down to oh, wow. uh, the boarding school. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, so I got to the end of that year and it was a great year. Like I, I thought, you know, I was great because I was playing so well up in Townsville and, and I got down to Brizzy and it was like a reality check. I went straight into third grade. <laughs> um, but, but progressively over the year, you know, I listened to all the fitness coaches and the guys in the gym and put in the extra work and I made my way up to, to the first grade and I came off uh, the bench in um, the Premier Division for the last couple of games. But I got a phone call from Dad sort of shortly after the end of the season saying, Toby, I think that's enough now. Mm. Oh, right. you, you need to take life a bit more seriously um, <laughs> and uh, I think you should go and get some experience um, doing the marine, you know, in, in what you were studying as, as a marine biologist. So through his contacts, because he was a livestock exporter, he knew people in, um, in the Philippines, uh, he gave me a name and said, call, call this name and sort of say you want to do a bit of work experience. So I spoke to um, a guy called Jerry Ledesmo who was over there in, in the government and he gave me a name and I called that and I ended up um, on a small island in the Philippines uh, for two months as a marine conservation biologist. I'm not wow. officially certified but doing everything the marine conservation biologists do. There's a small island there called Dan Hoogan that was gifted by um, sort of a wealthy guy that made a lot of money out of... Um, you know, mining and deforestation in the Philippines and mm-hmm. must have had a bit of a guilty conscience and he gave this pristine island to a local village. So um, in the time that I was there, we uh, set up um, alternative livelihood programs. I was diving every day, doing um, uh, coral reef transect uh, surveys. Uh, we set up a, a coral reef lagoon, like a nursery, and mangrove nurseries and the like. And that was a really wonderful experience. Like when I, when I first got there, um, there was a bunch of there was a bunch of people there that were on this program, which is uh, uh, it was like a Duke of Edinburgh type program. It was called Coral Lake, Coral Cay Conservation, and um, you pay quite a lot of money. So there was uh, some, about twenty uni students there that were all from fairly wealthy families in the US and Europe. So I sort of rocked in there and you know tried to sort of say good day, be my friendly self, and make mate and make make friends with them all. But they're all pretty insular. So. Um, so I just went off and did my own thing because I wasn't there associated with any group or anything like that. They had boundaries around where they could go diving. So they could only mm-hmm. go 20 metres off the, the beach. So I just sort of walked past them and go out and go for a, you know, go for a, go for a dive. But um, shortly, uh, I reckon about two weeks into that particular, um, while I was there, a bomb went off in the south of Mindanao. And this, mm-hmm. this, this group um, ended up doing sort of their risk assessments and, and packed up and left. 
And so I was there for a couple of days by myself on this island with two, you know, uh, Filipinos that were in charge of looking after this island. And then a group of OJTs came in, on-job um, on training cadets, um, who uh, basically Filipino uni students are partway through their course, get taken out of their course and go and get um, experience in the field. And that, that, that was amazing. I really got to experience Filipino culture while mm. I was there. Um, there was a bunch of 20-year-olds. I was, I think, how old was I at the time? Probably 19, 20 or something like that. Um, and it just, uh, it was a really wonderful experience. And, you know, I think for me, that sort of Filipino, uh, every Filipino I've met, really, really friendly. And I think I just resonated with that being from Darwin. But anyway, I got to the end of the time there and there was um, a couple of German PhD students came for the, the last couple of weeks. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. You know, I really sort of get um, stuck into some science. And anyway, I, um, I spoke to them. You know, it's still in the back of my mind about whether I wanted to go back and finish the degree at um, at James Cook and do marine biology, and not having, you know, not not having been a dedicated student, <laughs> um, I sort of asked them, "So, what do you do to get to here? Like, how you guys are out here every day? You travel the world. You're doing wonderful projects." And they said, "Oh, Toby, you well, you first of all, you need to go back and finish your undergraduate degree. You then need to go and do your masters, and then you'll likely need to get into a PhD." and uh, <laughs> And you'll be grovelling for funding and it's a pretty, you know, tough, um, you know, it can be a pretty tough time. So I had my own ideas about what I wanted to do with my life at that stage and, you know, having grown up and had all the experiences that I had, you know, with Dad with the, with the yacht and sailing with the family and all of that, I kind of knew that I wanted to get a bit of money behind me to support a family and for my family better have the same opportunities that, that I had. So I kind of got back into Australia uh, and, I, and I sort of spoke to Dad and just said, listen, I don't, I don't think I want to uh, go back and finish marine biology. Mm. And uh, my, my mum was there too and she kind of said, okay, well, why don't you have a chat to um, Nick Rigby, who was the head of um, the, I think the Bathurst region for um, New South Wales Parks and, and Wildlife. So I ended up uh, getting on the phone and talking to this guy and I said, he said, what do you, you know, um, I told him what I'd been doing and said, I really enjoy working in the environment, and, but I also want to make, you know, make a bit of a living for myself. And he said, well, Toby, you should get into geographical information systems and remote sensing. So, oh, okay, um, I didn't really know what that was. <laughs> so I did a bit of research and uh, it looked pretty cool. So that's... Um, uh, so geographical information systems is basically spatial data and layers and using it to, you know, manage the environment in a whole bunch of different ways. And remote sensing is using satellite imagery, anything remotely sensed to uh, learn about an environment and then fit it into modelling. So so I thought, oh, that looks pretty cool. And he said, yep, there's a lot of consultants get, you know, get, get a pretty good... Um, you get paid quite a lot to do this kind of work. So, I jumped on the um, I jumped on the uh, computer and did a bit of research and found out that ANU had the best course in Australia at that time uh, through the School of Forestry. Um, so I requested a transfer from what I'd been doing at James Cook University into ANU and uh, started there. And uh, in my first term, I, I did the GIS subjects, applied GIS subjects. I did every, you know, spatial mapping unit that I could possibly do, which was everyone, every every unit that the university offered in that field. And I did really well. Like I did, um, I enjoyed it. And I think because I was enjoying it, I studied hard and I ended up getting a distinction and a high distinction in those subjects and got offered um, got offered a gig over summer with a company called Geospatial Intelligence. Uh, and they were a company that did uh, sort of bespoke uh, satellite image analysis for a number of agencies. 
So I worked with them over the summer. I absolutely loved it. You know, I was doing 60, 70-hour weeks and sort of got time to go back to uni. And I thought, I just asked, I said, can I keep working with you? I'm really enjoying this. And they said, yeah, no, no problems. And so I enrolled in, um, enrolled in two units, so scaled the uni uh, study back, and I did that for, did that for a year. Uh, and then by the end of that, that year, uh, I got offered an internship with the, what was known as the Department of Climate, or no, it was the Australian Greenhouse Office at the time. Um, so, and that was through uh, uh, the guy, it was a guy from well, the rugby club I was associated with there at, um, in Canberra, it was running this team and it was called the National Carbon Accounting Team. And it was just, just at the time that uh, John Howard had not ratified, but um, committed Australia to all the reporting obligations of the Kyoto Protocol. So there was this team that was stood up. It's like, right, how are we going to do this? How are we going to, you know, monitor um, the flow of carbon through the Australian landscape to feed back to the Kyoto reporting obligations? And there was a guy called Dr Gary Richards that, that ran this team. There was a, a handful of programmers. There was a couple of, um, was a GIS uh, person, two from CIR and myself. And uh, it was a really, really great place to work. There was, um, it was exciting because it was a you know, new policy forming around Australia's response to climate change. There was a lot of, uh, it gave me a good introduction and insight into bureaucratic process, which is something that I'd never sort of experienced before. But, um, but yeah, the job, the job was essentially buying. So as part of the reporting uh, obligations, we had to model the flow of carbon, carbon back to, I think it was 1978. Um, so the first job was to buy as much satellite imagery as we could back to that date, and it was a bit patchy in the first couple of years, but I think by about 1980-something, we had a full picture of Australia. Um, so every year we had these sort of layers of satellite imagery, um, and our job was to prepare, or my job was to stitch together and prepare all of the satellite images of the whole of Australia. So satellite imagery, you don't get one shot, right? It's not like just being up in space and taking one photograph of Australia. It's broken up into about 380 different individual images. So all of these images are taken at different times of, um, different times of day, uh, and, uh, from different angles and all of that. So to be able to, model them you need to be able to um calibrate them essentially you know like calibrating a car so if it's a bright day or a, a dull day you've got to get them all balanced to the same so they look the same and then you've got to um you've got to do a, a spatial um registration as well so if you take two photographs of exactly the same um thing and you try and overlay them up over the top of each other unless it's on a tripod you get a bit of um they don't align essentially so my job was to stitch together these 380 photographs uh, for every sort of year from 1978 right through to what it was i can't remember what the day was there, to when i was working there which is early 2000s do this uh, spectral calibration do this spatial alignment and then hand it over as a stack of data to the CSIRO, who would then take uh, also, no, before that, we did change detection. So every year, we would once we stitched it all together, we would compare the images. So under the Kyoto Protocol at that point in time, there was a definition for what forest was. So we're all about land use change and the carbon flowing through Australia um, associated with land use change. So every year we would compare, we would go and try and detect where there had been deforestation or regrowth. So under the Kyoto Protocol, I'm just trying to rack my brain here. I think the definition of forest was at least, I think, a quarter of a hectare, two metres in height, and at least 20% tree density. So we need to go and find over the whole of Australia 
where their stuff was, <laughs> where it had been cut down and where it had regrown. So then eventually once we sort of did these uh, change detection maps, we'd hand it over to the C- CSIRO and they'd have about 380 different layers and then they would go and try and work out what the likely vegetation type is, um, uh, frost days, a bunch of different data and then eventually it spit out, you know, how much how much uh, carbon um well, the change in the carbon profile was for the year for Australia. So it's a really cool, exciting place to work. Can I just ask a question? Sure. So, Toby, just listening to what you've, uh, you've so descriptively laid out there, um, I'm just wondering whether you're in the right party, mate. You know, shouldn't you be in the Greens? <laughs> uh, well, I think... Uh, I'm very, very uh, happy uh, with where I am and I went through uh, a journey, you know, to to work out, you know, where I sat and, uh, you know, party-wise and we can talk about that later. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously uh, through through all of this, uh, you were in New South Wales the whole time, right, or the ACT? Yeah, ACT. Yeah, so ACT, I was based in Canberra. I was in a, in the John Gorton building in the in the basement. So I don't know if you know the Canberra buildings very well, but um, John Gorton building is one of those big blue standstone buildings right at the base of Parliament House that has yeah. like a. I think it used to be used uh, in maybe World War Two. I don't know, but as um, it's got direct roots up into old Parliament House. It's an old comms building. So the Australian Greenhouse Office. Um, thought that it would be good to have our team down in the basement so <laughs> contractors worked away and cut through i don't know it was like two and a half meters of concrete that they'd put in there to try and um stop whatever the secret squirrel stuff that was happening in that space originally <laughs> from being heard so the you know, australian greenhouse office uh, went rolled in down there they cut big skylights they ran um they ran all the water from the the, the main uh, building down uh, drink, you know, drinking water down into the Australian Greenhouse Office and uh, that, that backfired eventually <laughs> because it turned out that all the old, um, uh, all the old stormwater gutters were lead-lined. Oh, so we had everyone sitting down there in the Australian Greenhouse Office wow. and they eventually tested the water and found out that they, uh, they were giving us excess doses of uh, above-threshold levels of lead, which was, um, which was a bit of a... Yeah, it was a bit of a shock. There's a few um, pregnant women working down there at the time as well. So, you know, that was a bit of a scare for everyone there. But, mm. but yeah, no, it was, um, it, was, it was a great time. I really enjoyed it. Great team. We, we were kind of off on our own a little bit. So I'm not sure if all sort of government departments are like it, but all, everyone else seemed to be all working on policy and things like that. And we did have input into that. Um, but... We were off on our own. It was like this team program. It was a really high-performing team. We got um, big buckets of R&D money and, uh, you know, I got to go and buy. I didn't really know a hell of a lot about computers, but I dived into researching, you know, the latest uh, server racks. We got like, some really cool, like, cool water racks and uh, had times <laughs> where I was sitting down in there like a, you know, like a bit of an IT nerd plugged directly into um, these servers trying to, you know, not trying to, we were running all of our models through these because of that amount of data, right? It takes yeah. a hell of a lot of um grunt to be able to process it so so yeah no, it was a it was a great place good time and so uh from there what happened so i got to the end of my time there i, I hadn't finished um at anu so basically i got really engrossed in what i was doing in the team and i just let unisip go by the way by you know it kind of got me to where i needed to be um I think I've got two units to go for my, for, my, for my degree and I should probably do that at some point or go for some sort of retrospective um, 
you know, you know, some experience I've had since then. But um, so I got to the end of it, and then I still had this nagging desire to um, to play rugby professionally. So I, I ended up um, packing up and uh, going over to Vancouver, and I spent a year in Vancouver um, playing for a hundred-year-old club over there called Merrilomas, um, getting paid to play. Like it wasn't a wasn't a huge amount, but it was enough to live off and um, and have a good time while I was over there. And that, that was great. Um, and I also worked, they gave me a job as well. So I had enough money to get by on, but I wanted to do stuff during the day. And I ended up going going from working for the um, the Australian Greenhouse Office, you know, working on you know climate change-related issues to being an arborist. I learned how to be an arborist when I was in Canada cutting down trees. <laughs> you know, it's huge, it's huge old, um, I don't know what, they redwoods and pines and cypress and all that kind of stuff. So um, that, that was great. Um, the big change for me after six years sitting in front of a computer screen like that, it was intense. Like, uh, whilst I was engaging with my team, I wasn't dealing with anyone else outside of that. And I've always loved, you know, having a conversation like this or engaging with people and learning about their stories. And that's always been a big part of my personality. And I didn't get to do a hell of a lot of that in that in that job. So, um, but yeah, so looking at a screen for and and when you do this. Um, spatial registration right you look at the two images one's in red and one's in green and when you overlay them if, if they're slightly out of sync you get like a halo on one side so it's green on one side and red on the other so anyway you're looking at this you know dual big dual monitors for over six years i'm starting to go like lose my eyesight i was really mm-hmm. worried about it so being in canada was fantastic because you know climbing trees outdoors very healthy you know, engaging with clients and, and the people I worked with, it was it was, a, it was a good fun year. I was there in the year just before um, just before the Vancouver Olympics too. So there was a buzz on. There was a lot of infrastructure being wow. built. Yeah, yeah, it's good fun. So, so the simple man in me hears that as you you went from saving the environment to destroying it. <laughs> well, I think all the, all the qualified um, arborists would be yeah. up in arms because you yeah, know, and that job's know. really about you know keeping it healthy. Yep. But, but it did feel like that at times, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then after the, the year there, you came back, did you? Yeah, I did. So I actually ended up fracturing my ankle while I was over there and um, that, that sort of put an end to it all really. Um, uh, I'd, so we'd been through a year. We'd been through a year playing rugby there. I won my first ever um, premiership too. <laughs> that was a big deal uh, for me after I'd played rugby for, I don't know, 12 years or something yeah, like that. And yeah. I had to go over to Canada to win a bloody premiership. But, <laughs> um, and that was funny in its own right. Like, um, have you, you guys played sports, won, won premierships at all? Uh, won no premierships. Yeah, yeah. Played a bit of sport growing up. And, yeah. Uh, it's, the, it's the ultimate, isn't it? And it's a, I, I, I played in a competition table tennis team after I left school. Yeah. Just, for, just some mates and I for fun. And, yeah, we played in, like, some low grade, but just for a Tuesday night just to have a bit of a laugh. Mm. But as we played more and more, we got more and more serious and we actually made a couple of grand finals, but we never walked away with the trophy and it's, ah. <laughs> it still lingers. Yeah. <laughs> well, for me, it was actually an anticlimax. Wow. You know, I'd been over there, we'd had this whole year, the, the, the buzzer went off and I stand around and everyone was cheering and of course I was happy, like you put in the hard work and that kind of stuff. But at that point in time, for me, I realised, you know, you're training day in, day out and you're driving for this one goal and then you get there mm. and, and it wasn't about that ever. You know, for me, it was always yeah, about yeah. just rocking up with your mates on a Tuesday and a Thursday, yeah. you know, getting through a game, having a few beers afterwards and that was, I think that was probably the, the moment where I, 
you know, I think I lost that desire to be a professional rugby player or anything like that. It was just became That's fun interesting. after that. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you did ask me a question and I lost uh, oh, so a... Yeah. So I asked you what happened after the, uh, the 12 months in Vancouver. Yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah. So uh, Fractured Michael uh, ended up coming back home and living with mum and dad for a while. And that was, that was a pretty special time for me, uh, having been shipped off, or not shipped off, but got, had out off to boarding school um, at, I think it was 12 at the time. I'd never really had a good quality chunk of time with my parents. I had the added bonus of uh, my older brother being there as well. So because he was seven years older growing up, yeah, it's just a different bond, right? My younger mm. brother was a year and a half, so we, we were always mucking around and the older brother was always either looking after us, you know, out doing his own thing. So so he was there. So I got to hang out with him. I uh, got home, sort of went through healing up the ankle and then just, just hung out in, in um, Northern Rivers, New South Wales. Mum and Dad were living in Ocean Shores at the time. We, ben and I surfed every day. We hung out and... and I really cherish that time because uh, I'm not sure if we'll ever get it again, you know. We've mm. we all got young families now and, um, yeah, it was a really special time. So that time with mum and dad and then with my older brother and um, and then I think I'd been doing that for about sort of, I don't know, four months or something like that. And uh, mum and dad had some friends, like a, a close uh, friends of dad's from growing up who were in the region, they were sort of staying close by and they asked us to, you know, go over to dinner one night. And um, so, so we went over there and um, uh, mum and dad introduced us to Diana and Ian, which is Annabelle's parents, uh, which is my partner, my wife, um, Annabelle. And uh, they introduced me to this this lady, Annabelle. Uh, it was at the end of the table at the barbecue, and we sort of caught eyes, and and we got chatting, and there was just all these crazy coincidences. Like, so she was teaching at Pratt Primary at that time what? in one of the classrooms that I went to. Um, she had met Dad before, so after we'd been dating for a while, she pulled out this photograph of uh, her sitting on my Dad's lap as a three-year-old. So well before he had met Mum on the banks of the um, the old river in Kananara, where she grew up. Jeez, right? Wow. Yeah. So anyway, we got along really, really well, and because um, sort of chatting, sort of long distance, and then we basically said, "Why don't Why don't I come up and visit? I haven't been back to Darwin. I miss it. I haven't been back there since I went off to boarding school." And, so I flew up and um, we spent a week up there and I was just, I love this place and I really like you and <laughs> why, don't we, why, why don't we make a go of it? So um, I did up my, my resume with the experience I had on it and handed it around a number of the consultancies uh, up in Darwin at the time, so like the SKMs and GHDs and all those kind of companies and I got a call, call, to, uh, call back two weeks later. They basically said, yep, spatial skills in demand, um, yep, we can give you a job. So I basically sort of flew up there and started working in uh, consulting capacity with Sinclair Knight Mertz, which is a, a consulting company in Darwin at the time. Yeah, and that was, uh, that was an adjustment too. <laughs> so, so, well, I went from being, you know, working in a government department with buckets of money and, and, mm. and a defined task and, you know, um, sort of very high tempo to now being in a business environment. Right, where you've got defined projects and mm. you've got to deliver for your client in a certain period of time and you've got to, mm. you know, you've got um, the contract as well. So, um, and then the other thing was at that time, like it's a really specialist skill set, right? So there was only one other person that knew what I did and she ended up going away for 12 months on a being seconded away. So I was plonked into this consultancy and expected to sort of pick up basically straight away and start um, 
you know, start winning work. Well, I mean, I got, give, got given a fair bit of work to do off the bat, which is great, with the Department of Defence and a few other clients, and I sort of got my way through that. But then it got to the time where I was running out of work, you know, a bit of chargeable hours and all of that kind of stuff, and I just sort of started to worry about whether I was going to keep a job or not because, you know, that's the way consultancy works. You've, you've got to keep yourself busy. And because I didn't have a lot of people who knew what I did, it was sort of hard to try and work out which clients to target and, and the like. So... Anyway, we won a few jobs, but uh, an opportunity came up. Um, there was a project manager, a uh, guy that works on defence infrastructure project management, and he said, hey, Toby, I'll tell you a bit light on for work at the moment. Can you mind helping me on this particular project? And it was um, working for the Department of Defence, um, doing uh, infrastructure refurbishment out at a like a secret um, communications facility. And I sort of went, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And I got out there and I <laughs> see what all these people are doing and... Um, I got to sort of learn learn the contract and work on construction. I think um, I really enjoyed being able to be involved with, with projects where you finish your day and you can see something that's been done physically in front of you. So for all of those reasons, I, I basically changed what I was doing from a spatial consultant moving into um, moving into like an infrastructure um, project manager. Defence had this defined, uh, this defined role on their contracts called a project manager contract administrator where basically you take a project from the very front end, you work with the users to define what it is they need, uh, take it all through design and then through delivery. So, And that's been a really rewarding career. And that was 10, 10 12 years ago, I think. Um, and, you know, I was talking earlier about Darwin you know, being the frontier that it was when Dad came up and did his, you know, cattle cattle thing, um, and I still think it is in a certain in a certain um, in a certain way, because if you're sort of willing to roll up the seas and and um, and see it through, these opportunities come, you know, fall in front of you. Like I've just come from uh, four years down in Catherine with the family, working on one of the largest, <laughs> working on one of the um, largest. Um, infrastructure projects that the Department of Defence has rolled out since World War Two, you know, building facilities to support um, the Joint Strike Fighter, which is the new jet the Australian government's bought. Mm. Um, so they're replacing the classic Hornets and we we're building a whole precinct. And I got to sort of be on that project overseeing uh, Len Lease as a managing contractor. So, you know, to go from go from what I was doing initially to, to that, I just feel if I was anywhere else in Australia to be mm. in the role that I'm in, you'd need another 10 or 15 years' experience. Yes. You know, yes. To, a, to a certain extent, I feel like, you know, the Stephen Bradbury of <laughs> project <laughs> managers. But And I don't mean to be sort of derogatory. Mm. For anyone that knows that guy and knows his story, he put in yeah, six yeah. years' bloody hard work to be where he is and, yeah. and he stuck it out and, and the opportunities present and he got to where he got to and he's got a you know, magnificent story now. So... Um, so, yeah, so I uh, did sort of six years in Darwin and then moved down to Catherine to deliver that job. And that was a special job to be on. I found out, like, I think it's always really very important to have a reason to do what you're doing beyond just providing for your family. And um, when we moved down to Catherine to start building those uh, facilities, it was for a squadron, um, 75 squadron down there. And mum said to me, you know, you know, your grandfather was a pilot. He was a pilot in the RAF and um, you know, gave me his number. I did a bit of research and it turns out that he was uh, a pilot um, for this, this same squadron, 75 squadron. Uh, in World War II, he was defending the North Australia from the invasion over, um, over Malaysia. So wow. I just thought, like, when I found that out, you know, uh, well, I can't remember, four or six months or whatever it is into the job, I suddenly had this renewed, oh, this is awesome. You know, I'm really mm. contributing to something here. 
and and uh, also the the squadron, the commanding officer there at the time said, "Hey, we've got a bunch of old archives. Why don't you, you know, you come in, come in and have a look?" And they had this chest of old pilots' diaries, and I got to dig through it, and I found a couple of diary entries from from my grandfather. So, Gee. so mm. it was really cool. Yeah. Amazing. So, um, so then back to Darwin, and uh, that that brings us to today, virtually. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. And so what caused the, uh, the uh, sudden interest in politics? Oh, it was a combination of a number of things, I think. Uh, the, like if you had asked me three years ago whether I would be a politician, I would have told you to go jump. Like there's absolutely nothing that I considered. I was happy with the job that I was doing. You know, the announcements over the successive years has been $20 billion to spend in the Northern Territory on defence infrastructure. So I knew I had a really safe career in what I was doing, but... We've got a, um, a close friend who is a fairly um, senior person within government, mm-hmm. and uh, we catch up with them quite a lot. And they, um, you know, in one of the sort of catch ups, he, I'm inquisitive by nature. In one of these catch ups, there was a barbecue, and um, he sort of asked about what he was doing and the jobs he's working on, the programs he's working on, and successively over sort of three or four um, visits together, he said, Toby, you know, you so you ask some really insightful questions and um, and you know you show a lot of uh, intelligence and you know I, th- I think you'd be really well suited to being a politician and, and as a minister and I was like yeah right whatever you know I'm not going to do that but he um, he handed me and I still didn't consider it when he said it I, was like, I don't think I'm going to do that but he handed me a copy of the Constitution and he handed me a copy of uh, a textbook which was I can't remember the exact title it's like the history of power politics and policy or something like that in Australia. And uh, anyway, what constitution? Got, the Australian oh, okay, constitution. Right, okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Which I, you know, I still haven't read page to page. But, <laughs> you know, I think um, so. So that that started it off. That that started the ticking over in my head about whether you know whether it's something I want to do. I think having kids as well was a big part of it. You know, I've got an eight year old and a six year old, and um, for me, when when we had our kids, it really caused me to sort of take stock of what I was doing in life and and think about. Um, you know, legacy, I guess, but not in a sense that, you know, want to be up in the lights or anything like that. But what are you going to contribute to this world when you, you know, when you have to leave? Um, so that was a sort of another part of it. Um, and I guess there was a, a moment that sort of really got me going saying, I'm going to do this was uh, it's about a year and a half ago before they did the pre-selections for the Senate for the federal election last year. So they... Um, they the pre-selections had closed and then Shane Stone wrote a letter basically to um, the party and to Territorians saying, hey, I think we really need to broaden the field here and there are plenty of Territorians that are, have experience in you know, a number of fields. And, um, you know, and so off the back of that letter that Shane Stone wrote, they, they reopened the pre-selections for the Senate. And in that week, um, I was chatting to the kids who went to a school, grade school actually, down in Catherine called Casuaranstree Primary School. I was catching up with a father of one of the kids who's a mango farmer down in Catherine. Mm. And he was telling me about this story about how he had just had his water allocations cut in half with no consultation. And, and the data was from a year ago and, um, and he had just sort of sold all of his property in New South Wales and he was telling me about how he had, you know, doubled down in the Territory, doubled the size of his mango farm, all on the basis that he had this, you know, water allocation. And, um, and that got me sort of quite riled up. I said, that, that's, that's not okay. You know, you, if that's something they knew 12 months ago, it should have been straight, it should have been basically out there and, um, 
you should have known about it and that could have informed your decision not to sell up your property and invest in the territory. So um, so I said that's it and that was about 12 hours before the second round of applications were due for pre-selection for the Senate for the CLP. So um, that night I stayed up late, finished my application, submitted it um, and uh, then got a, a phone call saying, yep, you, you, you're on the list and your pre-selection's on this date. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and that was, you know, my entry into politics. I didn't, I'd never been uh, a member of a political party, um, but I had a very good understanding about uh, where I lay in the, the landscape um, through having read that textbook. Um, the person that sort of got me thinking about politics in the first, first place gave me about 20 names of people on both sides of politics in the Territory to go and talk to, and successively over about a year, I... Uh, I met with each of them um, to really galvanise where I'm at. I think that was really important for me to understand, you know, assess my values and make sure that the party that I was uh, running with, all of their values aligned with mine and I feel very comfortable with with where I am now with the Country Liberal Party. So, Toby, um, if you get in and you win the seat of Port Darwin, uh, what, what is it that you're likely to do? Where, where will you work within a CLP government, uh, you know, using your expertise? Well, that's, um, that's getting a long way ahead. Look, I'm, <laughs> I'm two weeks into my campaign and You've I am learning. Got to be positive, got to be yeah, positive. Yeah, no, 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 that, that's right. <laughs> but, um, but, but two weeks in and um, it's, it's going to be a tough campaign. You know, it's a really interesting landscape at the moment, particularly in Port Darwin. And... Um, yeah, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I know that, uh, and I have been over the last couple of weeks, engaging, door knocking, you know, doing all of that kind of stuff to really understand what it is that uh, the issues for people on the ground, uh, not just what's being fed to us. Um, so that, that, that's been really good. But um, if I had to pick uh, an area for me to specialise in, there's a couple, <laughs> which probably uh, one, one would be um, having worked in the industry that I work in. I've delivered over a billion dollars worth of infrastructure in the Territory over the last 10 years for the Department of Defence, over 30 projects. Uh, I feel like I've got a really good read on some of the challenges that face major infrastructure projects in in the Territory, you know, from um, broken sort of or dislocated supply chains through to uh, local procurement is a big one, you know, trying to balance multinationals and and local procurement, Indigenous procurement policies. Um, There's a whole raft of areas that I've been lucky enough to be sort of exposed to and have have a fairly good understanding of. So, you know, if I was to get through, um, I'm still new to the party. I'm very, you know, new to politics as well, but I feel like I'd be able to contribute heavily to, to that area. In fact, I don't think there'd be any other sort of candidate or sitting member for that matter that would have the same level of experience that I do in, in the infrastructure area. So that's an area that in time I would like to, um, you know, contribute to. Does infrastructure include bridges? Not for me, but yes, it does. <laughs> Can you tell someone to put up some bloody overpasses on Tiger Brennan, please, for Christ's Ooh. sake? The ones there aren't the ones there aren't enough. What sort of section? Well, from Bennett Street to Palmerston. <laughs> Why do we need traffic lights on that run? It does my head in. Pete, uh, yeah, that, that's his. Uh, he's got. He's jumped on his soapbox. Um, <laughs> but look, I think poor old Pete's taken you a little bit faster to where you got to than I wanted to. 
And so I want to, I want to back the truck up a little bit because you said something there that absolutely captured my attention and I'd like to drill down a little bit into that. Now, you, you said that you, you put in for pre-selection for a Senate seat, right? So that was for the federal election. Now, as I understand it, oh, is, uh, that would have been the seat vacated by Nigel Scullion, is that right? Yeah, correct. Right? So Sam McMahon obviously uh, won the pre-selection for that seat. What was it like going through the pre-selection process for the CLP? It was exciting. Daunting. How many people? How many yeah. people? How many people put their hand up for that seat? Because I would have thought it would have been a million. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember the exact number. Maybe like eight or, or nine. Maybe right. more. Yeah. yeah. So that was pretty naive of me to think that you know I'll just probably say, hey, you know, I've, I've worked at the federal level government. I understand you know bureaucratic process. I'm involved in you know big projects. I you know I, I have a good read of um, you know the political landscape at a federal level, but. You know, um, yeah, it's it was naive of me to sort of roll in there and think it would be anything. And to be quite honest, uh, I did not appreciate really the level of um, commitment that's required from a senator. And there's no way that, that I could have done that with my family the age they were. You know, well, and, and what you learnt that during the pre-selection process. Yeah, uh, no, no, sorry, sorry, that wasn't during the pre-selection process. That's a reflection on, on it sort of since. But so the pre-selection process itself um, filled, out, filled out an application, a lengthy application um, uh, with a whole bunch of sort of questions in it. Um, you sort of submit that, they get back to you and tell you, okay, you're going to go for an interview um, to Central Council, <laughs> which, which is, oh, I can't remember the exact numbers, maybe 60 to 70 people or something like that. And it was in a pretty short succession. So I think they finished the applications for pre-selection and I, I think it was a week, a week and a half until you had to give the speech and they tell you what the format of it is, you give a 10-minute address to everyone in the room uh, and then you'll have a handful of questions and then there'll be a couple of uh, set questions that everyone gets and then there'll be a couple of targeted questions. So when I got the phone call saying that you're on, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> So I had uh, a lot of uh, very late nights, a lot of phone calls to get across what I thought were the you know, major issues for the Territory at that point in time um, and, you know, cobbled together a 10-minute sort of speech uh, to address everyone. Um, and then so that was up at the Beaufort in, in, in Darwin. I was in Catherine at the time, so I drove up and uh, I had two days there in the lead-up to it just... Um, doing more research and, and, and refining uh, my thoughts on things and, and my speech. And they do all of the um, presentations, if you like, on, on the Saturday. So they say at some, time, at some point between you know, 8 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you will receive a phone call and you will come to where the, um, the function room is um, and, uh, and then you'll wait there till you're told to go in and give your speech. So... Um, I was pretty bloody nervous. Like, I, sure. yeah, I, I'd actually had a few experiences public speaking. Like, I never really had a problem when I was a kid, um, and and in high school, like I was always just sort of uh, fairly aloof and able to make people laugh. So whenever I have an oral presentation at school, I can, you know, throw something together last minute, walk in there, you know, give a, a really decent address and and get a good grade. Um, and, and same thing through uni too. I never really had too many issues with that. But when I was working for the Department of Climate Change, I had to give a presentation on what I did to the whole of the department. Okay, so like 
as you can imagine, like really image dense because what I was trying to explain was uh, more easily done with, with imagery. Anyway, this is a, um, I can't remember, it was like Windows XP or whatever that I was, but I was using um, a USB pen drive and I went, instead of just being a bit nervous before to get my presentation off the laptop I'd presented, uh, prepared it on onto the machine that I was giving the presentation in the room to 200 people on. And I, I copied it across and plugged it into the machine to get it all ready to present to 200 people. Um, and the, the, um, the USB drive corrupt or the files are corrupt. And then I went oh, back into, went back to the laptop and sort of plugged it back in, uh, to try and copy it again, but I'd cut it, not copied it. Uh-oh. So there was no version left. And so I was left there standing in front of 200 people thinking, how am I going to do this? I don't even have the talking notes on my presentation. And, and I just, you know, froze. I was lucky I had a number of people in there that, um, in the room that knew me and sort of gave me a few questions and turned it into more of a conversation. And uh, it ended out, you know, I ended up getting it all out. And, um, but just, just that moment ever since then, mm. up until I did the pre-selections for the Senate. No more cut and paste. All, yeah, no, 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 more, no more cut and paste. But, but just always, always, uh, always carried this, um, you know, nervous energy mm. around, you know, delivering to people. So, mm. so anyway, I had a printed copy of my uh, my speech and, and I got up there and, and I delivered it and I, I thought it went really, really well. Um, and then, yeah, the sort of questions came through on a number of sort of topics related to the party and, and, uh, and policy and then they say, okay, you're done. Um, oh, actually, no, I should, I'll remit, I should, there's someone I should mention. There was a guy. So I got the phone call, went into the, where they were doing the presentations, and there was a guy there called uh, George Grusos, who was an usher. So you kind of rocked in, and there I thought I was going to walk straight in, but George was the usher. And he could tell I was really nervous. And uh, he just started talking to me and sort of calmed me right down. And I was preparing and, uh, the speech and then just rereading through the speech. And I got to a state where I just felt really calm and everything was good. And he said, right, are you on, Toby? And he said, you follow the usher and you walk into the, the um the, uh, where the conference is, the doors swing open and you've got to walk through the whole, everyone, like 60 to 80 people, get up on a lectern and then sort of address this speech. So um, I was really lucky to have George there to sort of calm me down a little bit. And um, we, uh, yeah. Well, I, I know George quite well, actually. In fact, he was one of the first people I ever met when I came to Darwin. Oh, wow. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. yes, George. Uh, so we, where was this exactly? Which, which hotel? Uh, at the Beaufort. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's it called? The... Hilton? Double, double three, yes. Double three, yes. yeah. 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 When you say both, it means that we're, you know, we're all 80s, 90s, darling <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it was in there and then um, you finish up and all the others go through the time slot and then someone gets a phone call saying that they've been picked and then you all roll into a, a room where they do an announcement and, uh, yeah, Nigel Scullion was there and, uh, and Sam got announced. Yeah. Right. And it's uh, quite uh, ironic, isn't it? Because both you and Sam were Catherine residents at the time. Yeah, we were. Yeah, yeah. So I think that I've since learned now that there's a lot more to, to it than just the pre-selection process. I think um, I've matured a bit politically since then and understand that in, in every party, you know, you've got, to, um, you've got to put the yards in and you've got to get to know the party. They've got to trust you. Um, and you've got to go through a bit of that journey. And I was really fortunate that um, I did an okay job, I feel, of the, the centre speech. I got a lot of good feedback afterwards and said you should stick around. And I did. You know, so I uh, stayed with the party down at Catherine for, and started going to the branch meetings and learning more about the, 
you know, the workings of a, of a political party or for the country Liberal Party anyway. Um, and then eventually transferred up to Darwin. So that gives us a wonderful, wonderful segue into a question that I hope my co-host will ask you now. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to help him out a little bit uh, by uh, reminding him of the conversation that we had with uh, Chris Walsh on uh, Weekends with Walshy about a certain uh, Catherine member of the uh, Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, uh, perhaps Toby might be able to enlighten us on what's going on over there. <laughs> Is that a, a speculation on a pre-selection for the Labor Party? No, Is that no, you're talking no. about? No, no. no. He's, he's about to ask you what's what's going on with the dick pics. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, we, we were talking to uh, to Walshy last week on, on yeah. the first episode of Weekends with Walshy and the. Uh, the, the current member who is stepping Oh, out. gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm following you. <laughs> what's, yeah. what's going on there? Some, some sort of uh, self-implosion? I have no idea. All I know is that's bizarre. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's a bizarre set of yeah. circumstances. Uh, but I'm glad I'm not associated with it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so sorry to embarrass you there, but I just it was just one of those things. I still can't, you know, I still can't quite understand it. But uh, yeah. you know, just just the whole lying in bed uh, and, and and TikToking is the part that I'm having trouble with. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you think there would have been enough uh, through you know previous? Uh, politicians um behavior to sort of yes <laughs> yeah. oh yes, anyway yes we could we could certainly dig that up but uh, look uh, so obviously after uh, missing out on the senate pre-selection uh, they told you to hang around you came back to darwin and then you thought i'm g- going to throw my hat in the ring for a for a for a, a seat locally is that what you're thinking was yeah, yeah. So um, the project I was working on was coming to an end mm-hmm. uh, and I was looking for another major project to work on. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a company, GHD, who had been looking to uh, recruit someone in the defence space at sort of my level for a while. Um, and uh, I ended up moving up with them and working on a couple of projects, which I'm still working on now, which I wanted to, with clients that I've wanted to work to with for a long time. So working with the US Air Force, delivering a facility on um, on Rathbase Darwin and then also working on a, a program of works which is um, part of Australia's commitment to the Pacific Step Up. So, you know, we're gifting a number of patrol boats to Pacific Island nations or one of the nations we're gifting patrol boats to is, is East Timor. Uh, and I've been uh, working on that project, uh, basically uh, working with the team to develop a design and will eventually, uh, depending on what happens in August, mm. uh, move that project will move on to uh, delivering uh, maritime facilities to support patrol boats. So, so the uh, project that you're doing with uh, GHD, is, is that the apron? Uh, the, no, the, no. So there's a few, um, there's a few uh, projects going on there at the right. moment. The one right. I'm working on is called a Squadron Operational Facility, right. and it's a facility that will uh, support um, the movement of P-8 Orions, which are like a maritime surveillance aircraft, um, as part of Australia's uh, US Force Posture uh, Agreement. Uh, there's a component of that called the Enhanced Air Cooperation, and part of that is the, the certain US aircraft flying in and out of Darwin. So we're building a facility that will hold about 70 people uh, and a number of functions that they um, they need uh, to support right. the operation of that aircraft while they're here temporarily on exercise. We'll have to introduce you to Bill Savarino, don't you reckon, Pete? 
That's exactly what I was thinking, yes. Absolutely. Um, Toby, something that interests me a lot in this area, and it was the same when we spoke to um, Tracy the other day, uh, Tracy Hayes, was that uh, given that you're running for a seat, you you still got a life running until that point in time. So how does that work? What's the split between what you need to do to try and get elected and continuing your, your day job or, or your normal day-to-day life? Yeah, the first couple of weeks have, have been a bit of a, an adjustment. So, you know, recognising that a, a campaign's a political campaign's a pretty full-on thing. Uh, I've scaled back to four days a week. So I've freed up a Friday to do a number of um, you know, business meetings, talk to um, constituents and business about, you know, whatever it is that they, they have. Um, but I won't lie, I mean, it's, it's, it's been challenging, you know, trying mm. to scale back from working 60 days, 60 hours a week as a consultant to trying to balance a young family, you know, eight-year-old mm. and six-year-old, um, mm. my work um, and, and running a campaign, as well as all the lead-up to the pre-selections as well, you know, a fair bit of effort goes into that too. So, mm. so far, so far it's been good. Uh, like I, I use some of my clients' terminology, I really just need to find a bit of a battle rhythm and I don't mean that in the sense that I'm going to war, just, just need to have a bit of rhythm to what I'm doing and make sure the important things to me are locked in. So family is really important to me uh, and making sure I've just got chunks of time dedicated because I think uh, I've seen with uh, other, you know, candidates' uh, campaigns that that can just go by the wayside. And For me, my life would fall apart if I didn't have that in place and I didn't have that time with my kids and with Annabelle. Um, so, yep, yeah, you know, put those rocks in there and then all the other activities that need to go around it. So, you know, the roadside uh, waving and the, <laughs> the door knocking and, and all of that stuff. So, so yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's been a challenge, but I'm also taking an amount of time off in the lead up to the election as well, which will really let me when we, you know, when we hit, when we need to hit our straps, uh, that'll really give me a good run in. Mm. And so uh, on the hustings, what have you been, what have you been hearing? <laughs> So uh, the the common one, which has been less less of an issue during COVID, but it's starting to re-emerge now, is just um, uh, behaviour in the CBD. So I think you know um, a lot of I don't call it antisocial behaviour, but I guess that's what it is. But um, that that is a, a fairly significant issue. It has a number of um, flow-on effects, you know, to, to tourism. You know, I love it when a well, I love it when a uh, uh, cruise ship comes to town, you know, the place feels alive. We've got, um, you know, thousands of people in the CBD, the pubs are full, retailers are happy. But when their first experience coming off that ship is, you know, basically seeing uh, a violent act or, um, you know, being abused in the streets or whatever it is, um, word travels quickly, you know, on a day and age of TripAdvisor, <laughs> mm. you, can, you can lose your writing pretty quickly. But so that's that's an issue. There's a lot of sort of broken windows, and now that COVID, yeah, the restrictions on COVID are releasing. I understand that you know another 400 people or so are moving back into the CBD. So it's a hard one. You know, if I recognise that there are some significant underlying social issues that uh, have people living in the streets, and 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 that's you know that that needs to be addressed. And, and successive governments have tried. To do that, I remember in doing some of the research from the pre-selections, I read a report called The Long, Long Grasses that was written in 2001. A lot of the issues that are presented in that are still present today. Mm. So successive governments haven't really worked out a way to um, solve that particular issue. Um, and a lot of the sort of mental health um, side of it is associated with it too. So that, that that's a big one for people. Um, uh, some people, you know, people I've talked to are, 
you know, it can be quite polarising. Some people say, right, okay, well, they're all there because of the soup kitchens, so we've got to move the soup kitchens, which will mean the people move, and, and that, that's how we'll solve it. Others say, um, you know, others say that we just, yeah, like I said, need to fix the underlying social issues. So how do we... So there's a couple of projects um, that I'm keen to learn more about. One's come out of the Colourwatt community, which is looking at... Um, uh, building some infrastructure within the CBD that would be better support um, people that are homeless in the CBD and then uh, tapping that into uh, the ability to, um, you know, feeding them into appropriate um, support services from government or getting them back out to sort of communities uh, where they're from. So so I'll uh, look forward to sort of learning more about that in the next couple of weeks. I've got a few. Um, catch-ups planned with people to learn more about that particular project. I think it has the potential to, to at least mitigate, you know, some of what's happening at the moment. Toby, you said before that you don't want to get ahead of yourself because you're only a couple of weeks in. I, I, I fully appreciate that. Have you got a um, in in talking to your um, potential colleagues? I guess they are. Um, have you got a um, a portfolio, not, not in mind, that's not the right word, but, you know, is that being discussed with you in, in any sort of solid way or is it just a wait and see, we'll wait and see if we get into government first? Yeah, um, no, I'm not really focused on that, to be honest. You know, I, I said I've got an area I could contribute to and I, since, uh, you know, I, I truly believe that I do. Um, but for me, it's really about just getting back to, what politics for me should be, for anyone should be, and that's representing people and getting out there and face-to-face and in the flesh and listening to people, getting back to them, saying, you know, I've thought about what you said, how, how does this idea work? You know, it's basically solving you know, society issues. So I'm not um, thinking about any of that at the moment. For me, I'm doing this not as a, you know, one-term thing, just step straight into, you know, a ministry or anything like that, you know. I would hate to be in a position where it's like an episode of Yes Minister, and I do worry. <laughs> I do worry that you know we do have. Um, I, don't, I don't want to get on the negative path, but we need to make sure that we have people that are running departments that have experience in that area. I think that's critically important. So yeah, so for me, I'm not thinking any far ahead. For me, this is a 20 year journey, right? I've had my career and. Um, you know, spatial staff, we've had my career consulting and now I, I want to be a politician for the Territory to just, um, you know, drive towards um, uh, a vision, you know, start to build a vision of where we should be in 2040 and, and, and that will take a bit of a coming together as well. You know, I recognise that I think a lot of Territorians, as I was actually when, um, you know, when we all saw the revolving door of um, politicians at a federal level and we sort of repeated at the territory level, you know, all of that side of uh, politics is everything that I'm standing up to not be, to represent something better, to lift a standard of, of politics and contribute to, you know, a more genuine, real, um, yeah, political arena, yeah. What's your view on uh, bringing the Charles Darwin University into the city? Uh, I think I think it's a, a very good thing. You know, I think it needs to fit into it needs to fit into a long term dream. So how how does it fit into where we want the territory to be in twenty forty? You know, are we ever going to be a mini Singapore? I, I doubt it. I don't think we're ever going to be that big sort of financial hub. But um, what could we be? Could we be like a, a Boston or a university town? 
maybe that's something we should do. So um, I'm not completely sold and I haven't actually seen it, but um, some, uh, you know, about the whether it stacks up as a return on investment at the moment, particularly now that sort of COVID's happened as well. Like how will it stack up as a model? I know that the university spent a significant amount of money and time uh, positioning itself as an online service provider. I think at one point, wasn't it the, the, the biggest um, provider or the, the biggest online university in Australia, I think, at one point. So it's going to take a bit of a pivot and I'm, I, it's not an issue I'm across. It's something that I will get across, but I'm really keen to understand the university's model to support what they're trying to achieve by having the CBD in Darwin. I think when you do that too, uh, Toby, it might be worth also um, reading the uh, opinion piece that was in the NT Independent from one of the former... Um, one of the former administrators of the university uh, who, 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 I mean, I've read it and I found it quite uh, thought-provoking because he thinks it's a bad idea. Mm. Uh, but he lays down some pretty salient reasons why. And I think for something that is, you know, going to cost $400 million, albeit that the federal government's going to kick in half, uh, it is... A line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it is still worth... Um, it's still worth having a good look at uh, the pros and cons and not just sort of getting into some sort of echo chamber with the university about whether, you know, that, that this is a great thing. I mean, we were just bouncing it around uh, the, our, our partners the other day, just around the table and um, at work. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I went to the University of Western Australia before I came up here and that's a sandstone university that's outside of the CBD. I don't think they even have a CBD um, presence in Perth but there was something great about going to a university that had a campus you know that was pristine that just you know you felt like you were at university and I've seen uh you know um some of the other universities that have these city campuses and you just I, I don't know you just don't feel like I don't feel like you're at uni <laughs> you just yeah, yeah. some sort of office building you know what I mean so I think it's worth having a bit of a, a real serious think about that. Mm. But uh, in terms of ideas and things like that, I mean, there's so much opportunity for, for Darwin, as you correctly point out. And, you know, one of the things that seems to strike me as something that doesn't seem to be talked about enough is, is solar energy and us being leaders in, you know, in, in, in this field of solar. Given that we've got this, the car race that happens every two years, Yet, uh, in terms of the take-up of solar on roofs of houses, um, you know, we just had the government just uh, shut down that uh, that uh, um, subsidy, or the 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 the, the, uh, the way they price it, so it, it's not as lucrative. I think Pete can talk more about that. But you know, these are the sort of things I think that um, people that are looking and thinking about a revision for the NT uh, are certainly talking about. Don't you think, Pete? Yeah, look, I think so. Uh, I think um, yeah, I was just sitting there listening to Toby and I, I was listening to you about the uni as well. Um, I think there's going to be certain issues that are going to win and lose any election um, and, you know, th this will be no different. Um, I mean, I'm passionate about solar, as you know, because the, the, the technology is so great, but I think the Territory's got some, some really big issues to deal with at the moment and um, how that's going to be done, I don't know. Um, I keep harping back to this John Elfrink conversation, but it was quite pivotal for me because it just kind of made so much sense. Um, 
Yeah, one of the things that I'm really interested in is is how the CLP thinks governing is a possibility at the end of this election because there's there's a lot working against both of the opposition parties at this stage, not least of which the the, the whole COVID nineteen thing. Um, you wouldn't be running, Toby, being a sportsman, being someone who's you know, grown up playing competitive sport. You wouldn't be running if you didn't think you had a chance. So how does the party win government? Well, I think we need to, you know, I thought there was an appetite there. Like if you had asked that question in December, you know, when the, the polling sort of came out, I think there was a bit of an appetite there and people were starting to um, really have a closer look at where we um, sit um, from a budget and sort of economy, you know, economic standpoint. And yes, um, whilst COVID has um, detracted a bit from that, I still think we, you know, we've got 90, it's 90 odd days now until the election. We have time to just to explain to people about what, you know, um, I think the fundamental philosophical differences between, you know, the parties and where we stand on. You know, the economy and managing the economy. So I think that's a that's a big challenge ahead for the party. Um, but there is, um, you know, the, the writing was on the wall back in December. We saw the polling uh, come out um, uh, and looking at how the you know the territorians' thoughts on uh, on the current government, and it wasn't looking great. You know, so if you ask that question back in December, I'd have a very different answer for you. Um, We've got 90 days until until people, not 90-odd days, until people have to cast their vote. So we have a period of time to be able to talk to Territorians and um, sell, not sell, and uh, give our message, uh, which is really, um, you know, we're starting to form our, uh, present our platform now, which is around jobs and um, uh, opportunity and safety. Uh, and you're seeing some solid uh, policies come out around mining tax and um, fast-tracking approvals and um, and a policy around police recruitment. So I think what we have needed to do and we are starting to do and will continue to do on the way to the election is give a bit of meat on the bone for what Territorians can expect from a country Liberal Party government. I feel that the first um, lot batch of policies that we've released, particularly the mining tax and the mining tax reforms and um, and the uh, sort of expedited approval uh, task force uh, really come from the heart of what the country Liberal Party is about and that's, you know, facilitating, um, uh, you know, facilitating, opening up, opening up the doors for business to be able to operate. You know, the mining tax was a very good example of that. Uh, at the moment, um, feed, feedback was that the um, you know mining companies operating in the Northern Territory uh, is quite a uh, confused. Um, uh, it's quite confusing for them to be able to calculate forward projections on revenue based on the way that our uh, mining tax is uh, set up. So being able to go back to basics, saying we'll go back to an ad valorem, you know, at value tax gives them the ability. You know, particularly in times where it's volatile as it has been around COVID, to look forward and say, "This is what my business can expect from government." I think um, ultimately, businesses are looking for some stability. You know, a stable environment to be operating in, and so are territorians as well. You know, I think the rollout of COVID uh, was a very tricky one for the, the Labor government uh, and for all governments across the territory. It was a new thing; like we'd never seen a pandemic before. And um, through that, there was a lot of reactive policy coming out. But um, 
I think we found with the initial stimulus package, I think it was $30 million, didn't it go out for uh, um, mm. yeah, the yeah. scheme, the stimulus scheme? It went up to, blow it to $100, $100 million though, didn't it? Yeah, it did. So yeah. this is sort of where I'm getting to with, with mm. having a sort of stable environment to uh, operate in. So it started off with $30 million to be spent in, in three months. And, okay, right, everyone, you know, a lot of uh, smaller, you know, construction companies uh, tooled, tooled, tooled down, basically tools down to be able to write quotes to be able to feed into this stimulus package. I mean, it was a... Um, and that had a f- fairly profound impact. So this was government pulling a lever to do the right thing, and I think it was the right thing to be able to, you know, release this money quickly into the economy. Um However, when you take it from you know being thirty million up to hundred million, you extend it by twelve months. It has a ripple effect through the way that smaller businesses operate. So, if you're a small building company, um, you suddenly you're preparing for COVID. You're thinking maybe we'll have a three to four week shutdown and then we'll get back in with our clients. Suddenly, all your clients have cancelled their orders, right? Because they're um, they want to take advantage of the stimulus package. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because everyone's doing that, then suddenly your tools down. No one's on the tools, so you're not making any money and writing quotes for three to four weeks. Um, that's just, you know it's a, that's a big impact for you know smaller smaller business. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you get told, okay, well the money that you thought was going to come through and be spent in a three month period is now stretched out over twelve months. Mm-hmm. And it's not being released, and um, and I haven't seen the latest figures on how uh, how the approvals are going with the stimulus package. But it wasn't coming out in the way that it was originally intended. So all of these businesses that were positioning to be able to take advantage of a short, sharp burst uh, were suddenly uh, are now sort of struggling because they're waiting on this pipeline of money to come through to be able to pick it up. So hmm. yeah. Yeah, because I mean, listening to you, listening to Tracy, I mean, you both come from the private sector. You both understand how that works. Um, it, it, it is lamentable to me that that the Labor Party doesn't try and recruit people like you guys, uh, not, not necessarily because you share the same, you know, values and things like that. But you know, I'm sure there's there must be people out in in, in business that also share values, uh, you know, uh, Labor values, uh, because. You know, for a Territorian like me, I just find it supremely frustrating, Uh, and I said this on the podcast the other day with Tracy, that the private sector operates in such a dramatically different way to the public service. Uh, And, you know, it's so difficult for you guys to talk about the public service without being labelled as cutting the public service or, you know, CLP are going to come out and take public service jobs. And, and just, you know, the, the, the approach of, of, of labour, unfortunately, it seems to me, and this is politics, I get that, uh, is, oh, well, let's just, uh, you know, we will paint the CLP as being toe cutters that are going to come in, and if you're a public servant, your job is in jeopardy. And I just don't think that serves the Territory well at all. There needs to be a bipartisan approach to the reform of the public sector. Um, everyone knows, whether you're in the public service or not, that there is a lot of waste and there are plenty of public servants that work very hard. There's no question about it. I know some of them. Um, I'm related to some of them. Um, but there are also, yeah, but, but there's also deep-seated frustration within the public service about the ability to make changes. I mean, the private sector is so much more nimble and able to pivot so easily uh, in relation to, you know, changing staff, you know, getting the right kind of staff into the right positions 
and, and trimming waste and doing those things. And the public service is just tied up in just incredible knots of bureaucracy, it is almost impossible to fire someone in the public service. And I just think that's ridiculous. And that is, is, what, that is, is, that is what has contributed to the vast majority of the mess that we're in right now in relation to the budget, in my view. Mm. No, I agree completely. And I mean, there's a couple of parts to this. So the first one is, you know, that, that sell of transparency. We were promised a lot of transparency in the uh, 2016 election. So the Office of the Commissioner of uh, Public Employment are meant to release quarterly figures on the, um, the public service numbers. They haven't been released since September 2019. So we don't really have a clear view on what the government has been doing in terms of um, recruitment. I mean, to, to me, if, if, if they've been continuing to recruit at the rates they had previously, that would be a real kick in the teeth to territorians and business that have been going to the ends of the earth just to stay afloat. So um, that's sort of one part of it. The, the public service generally, listen, you, you've heard, I, I was a public servant for over six years down in Canberra. You know, there's a lot of very, very dedicated people. And I think during the... Um, the COVID-19 pandemic and government's response to it, we saw public servants working big days trying to make things happen for Territorians. They did show that they have the ability to be able to pivot and to be able to respond to, um, you know, to respond to um, emerging sort of issues. But so to me, it's really a cultural thing. And a lot of it comes from the top down, you know, boils from that minister's relationship down through the executives right down into the department. I, um, you know, I've got a few ideas about the public service myself, uh, coming from a public, um, coming from a project management background. You know, I've uh, done a bit of research into the application of some project management principles called Sigma Six. And I think there is scope to be able to look at developing a framework around that. You know, essentially, it comes from um, it, it comes from the Toyota and um, Ford manufacturing factories, where they looked at uh, efficiency and driving improvements in efficiency. So, um, and and they're called land governance principles. And it's not about sacking anyone at all. We've already have a commitment from our from the opposition leader, from Leah Finocchiaro, that we're not going to sack any public employments. It's really about, given what we already are now, let's use the size, you know, how, how powerful would our public service be if we could really start to see some high performance in the same way that you would in the public sector. So land government's principles have been rolled out around the world, uh, successfully rolled out in Quebec. They've been rolled out um, across a number of states in the US. And we've also seen them trialled here in Australia and rolled out successfully here in Australia with the Melbourne City Council. So I would really love to for us to have a look at uh, having a consistent framework across departments uh, that do have clearly identified indicators. You know, fundamentally, um, government and departments is a, is a transactional business, right? We're trying to approve things or uh, uh, allow things happen for um for the people that you represent. So in any transactional business, um, you need to have a look at process and, and um, land government's principles really look at that, that um, the process associated with the transactional side of government. But it's, it, it takes a real cultural shift as well. So uh, engaging the mid and lower tiers of uh, departments to be involved in um, identifying efficiency gains and doing that around a structured process of, um, you know, Kaizen's meetings and the like. So, 
So, you know, for me, um, you know, I'd love to see in 10 years' time a, a framework where we celebrate the success of, of departments, you know, where, where it's open to everyone how they're performing you know, with clearly defined and agreed metrics. I think that would be a really great place to be in with, yeah. I love that conversation. Um, I, I, I love the fact that, uh, you know, <laughs> There's a look at making things different because, yeah, Leon touched on it before. Uh, rightly or wrongly, the theory in the past has been that the CLP come in and chop everyone's toes off, Labor comes in and lets the, uh, you know, lets the money flow. The, the reality is that the conversation of public service in the NT uh, is being had across the board. And it's, it's almost unfathomable for me having only ever worked in the the private sector to see a a group whose basis and reason for being is to serve that that it seems and i'm not you know pointing fingers at individuals here but it seems as though the, the the power of them is counterproductive to achieving what government needs to achieve in the nt and that is reducing debt, reducing waste. This, this whole, because the size of the public service in the NT is so big, they seem to hold the balance of power. That, it just seems ridiculous. It's a big call, Toby. I've got to tell you, I don't agree with Leah Finocchiaro's commitment not to sack anyone. I think that uh, that's my personal view, uh, and I'm quite happy to go on the record about that. To me... Uh, it, it, it's you know when you have one in five people in the territory that work for the uh, public service, uh, I think that you just can't afford to make those sort of commitments. Now I understand, fully understand the economics of it. I fully understand that you can't have people leaving the territory, uh, you know, because they don't have jobs. I get that, but you know, there has to be something fundamental done within the public service to allow the free and flow and movement of people into and out of the public service. Right now, I don't even, I mean, I'd love for you to get that report and come back on the podcast and talk to us about how many supernumeraries there are, you know, people that are just floating around that don't actually have a designated job. You know, every time someone uh, advertises a position within the public service, they've got to offer it first or they've got to give priority to these supernumeraries who, you know, for a variety of reasons may not be the right people. You know, I mean, it's just a giant mess. The private sector doesn't have to deal with any of this nonsense. You know, the private sector is, right, we need to fill this position, off we go to market, stick it out there, find the best candidate, get them in there. You know, the public service has to just seems to jump through hoops, do all sorts. And in the end, it becomes, you know, you want to talk about mental health. I think you want to survey a number of the mid-managers in the public service and just find out what their mental health is like, because I'm sure they're sick of it as well. And, you know, we just need to have stronger conversations about this and break through this morass of crap. Mm. You know, otherwise the, the, the whole six, uh, six Sigma thing and everything is just going to be something that's fantastic on paper, Toby, but never really sees the light of day, you know. And, and we need people, politicians, whether in government or aspiring, to have the confidence 
and the courage to come out and say, look, uh, I don't agree with this and we need to do something about it. I mean, CLP are damn good about doing it in relation to crim, uh, crime, uh, criminals and, you know, crime. You know, you know, whenever you want to you survey people about, okay, which is the best party to deal with crime out there in the suburbs, they'll tell you CLP hands down because when the CLP are in government, it seems that there's less um, crime on the streets. That's the perception, rightly or wrongly. I mean, you get a guy like Chris Walsh to come on and talk about that. He'll tell you, well, the CLP, when they're in power, you know, everyone, uh, all, all these uh, criminals end up in, in a pit somewhere. You know, when Labor in power, they're all, you know, tagged and released. I mean, Christ, we need something in between. <laughs> we need, we, you know, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, Pete, you can tell me I've jumped on my soapbox now, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's something I think Territorians feel very strongly about, very frustrated with both the CLP and with um, Labor. I think that the jury's out in relation to the Territory Alliance because there's just been no experience there. But we just need stronger politicians with courage. And real, yeah. Mm. Anyway, mate, on that note, I better, <laughs> I better let you get to bed. You, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate you doing that. Uh, Pete, do you have anything to add to that? Policies, policies, policies. <laughs> I'll keep rolling out. I I'll say it to anyone who listen, I love the fact that you've, you, you're not waiting for this six weeks before thing, which was what I was told was how it worked before. Mate, I've got to tell you, as Leon just said, you've got a government who, uh, but in your own words, or I don't think you use these exact words, but I'll, I'll paraphrase, was on the nose until December. Things have changed because of this pandemic and some governments will get some free passes as a result, rightly or wrongly. But you, you've, you've, got a, you've got fractured parties running for government on all sides People need information. The more information you can get them, the better. And, you know, it's, it's in your hands. Yeah. All right, mate. Well, we appreciate Thank you so much. On. Yeah, thanks, Leon. Thanks, uh, Peter. Really appreciate being on. It's been great chatting to you, Toby. Thank you for joining us on the Territory Story podcast and uh, look forward to catching up with you again soon. Yes. All right. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, the Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.